Well, good morning. It's a joy and privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. I will be reading Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 this morning as we continue our series through Romans. But uh, before I do, um, many of y'all may have received a letter uh, this past weekend, and if not, you'll be receiving one tomorrow, if not Tuesday. Um, and um, while I've told many people, it never gets any easier. Um, um, some months ago, a church approached me about a, a position that would one day lead to take over this church in Blairsville, Georgia. Um, and after many, many months of prayer and consideration and uh, looking at the many positives it had, and yet the, the glaring weakness was, um, it, it wasn't Pear Orchard. Um, it didn't have the kids that I loved. It didn't have uh, you faithful members that I had come to cherish every Sunday. Um, and yet after prayer and consideration and thinking over it, we do feel that the Lord is leading us there. Um, and so we will begin our transition over the next couple months. It's not goodbye today. We're not out of here tomorrow, um, but we will look to transition at the end of the year. And um, well, I've said it in my letter, I've said it to many of you, and I will say it again until we leave and even after that. Um, words can't express how kind you have been to me and my wife. Um, I could go on and on and on about the gift it's been to be here. Um, I knew it was a mistake not coming up here without tissues. Uh, but um, yeah, I love you guys. And it's been a joy to be your pastor. And it's been a joy to work with your students. Uh, well, with that, let's turn to Romans. We'll be continuing our, our look through Romans, and here as we come to what might be the most glorious section in all of the New Testament, certainly in all of Paul, we come to the capstone of his entire argument so far, not just of chapter 8, but really of the entire book so far of Romans. He begins, if you remember, all the way back in Romans 1 through 3, talking about our, our, our just desserts of God's wrath. Right, that our sin had, has placed us in a position where we were nothing but deserving of the wrath of God. But then he quickly moves to the glorious news of justification by faith alone. And there's a way we're made right with God. And then he spends chapters 5 through 8 looking at the doctrine of sanctification. Right Now once we've been made right with God, how do we grow to look more and more like God? And here in Verses 31 through 39, he caps it all off with one summary statement. Caps everything off with, if you have to know one thing out of the last eight chapters that I've written, this is what I want you to know. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate from us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That sends God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those marvelous statements that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Father, I pray that through the power of your word, by your spirit, that that message would sink into our hearts, sink into our souls. Lord, give us eyes to see the great love with which you have loved us. Lord, do not let a, a moment pass, Father, before we are convinced right down to our core that you love us. Father, we thank you for the many, many mercies you give us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a single question, I believe, that sits at the heart of every human being. It's a single question that sits in your heart right now. It's a, it's a question that has driven every major pop song for the last 50 years. It's inspired every poet, every author, every thinker. Everyone operates with this question in mind. Am I loved? Am I loved? If we're being honest, if I'm being honest, that is the question that drives everything I do for, on a day-to-day -day basis. Am I loved? The great St. Augustine begins book two of his confessions with this, this remark, that the single desire that dominated my search for delight, all the things he did looking for delight, was simply to love and to be loved. Simply to love and be loved. See, contrary to the great Tina Turner, love has everything to do with it. Right? Love has everything to do with everything. Because it is that twofold desire to love and to be loved that dominates everything we do. And there's something else behind that question, isn't there? There's something else behind the question of am I loved? And that's that lurking fear, that suspicion that one day you'll be found out for who you are. That one day people are gonna see you as you truly are and everyone's gonna leave you. That one day you really will find yourself unloved. There's a song that I heard many years ago and it's stuck with me to this very day. It's by, a, you may know her, a singer-songwriter by the name of Julian Baker. By no means a Christian um, and yet she writes words that I think stick to our hearts far more than many Christian songs. And here's what she says in her song, Everybody Does. She says, I know myself better than anybody else. And you're going to run. You're going to run when you find out who I am. And then, most hauntingly of all, it's all right. Everybody does. I think those lines sum up our own hearts, don't they? That when they see how truly terrible I am, you're going to run. And at the end of the day, everybody does. See, Paul knows that fear. He knows that question. Right? Even though he lived 2,000 years before us, he was just as much a man as any one of us. It was the, it is, he knows it is at the core of who we are because it was at the core of who he was. You may have a wife, you may have a husband, you may be a Hebrew of Hebrews. You may have kids. You may be the guy that everyone wants at their 
tailgating party. You may have all the friends in high school, and yet underneath it all is that incessant voice. If they find out who I really am, they'll walk away. And see, the scary part is, is that that little voice is right. That little voice is not, not lying about that. See, there is enough evil in my heart, and you know there's enough evil in your heart, that if one day that were to, to break out, everyone would turn their back on you. And we often bring this same fear before God, don't we? We bring this same fear that if God saw how I really was, which he does anyways, how am I so loved? Am I really loved by God? Charles Hodge sums it up this way, that the great difficulty with many Christians is that they cannot persuade themselves that Christ or God loves them. And the reason why they cannot feel confident in the love of God is that they know they do not deserve his love. On the contrary, that they are in the highest degree unlovely. You know as well as I do that each of us are to the highest degree unlovely. And yet Paul, like I said, wants to give us the main message for everything that he's written. I don't know, I'm not a big play guy. I used to have to go to some in college, but the one thing that I always found troubles with plays is that I had no idea what was going on. Right? Especially if Shakespeare were the, the, the main feature, right? Too many these and thous, t- didn't really, couldn't pick up anything, right? Didn't know what was going on. But thankfully, there was always the playbill, right? The, the, the great guide to what was going on. And in the playbill, you'll find the summary of exactly what's happening. Right? You'll, you'll figure out that, oh, Hamlet's uncle killed his dad. I see, I get that. Right? Or, or Othello is slowly going insane. Right? He gives you, it gives you the key points. And in the same way, Paul is giving you a sort of playbill here, right? It's easy to get lost in his dense theological arguments in Romans. And yet here he is saying, if there's one thing that you get, there's one thing you're sure of, it's that God loves you. There's one thing Paul wants to get into your bones, it's that God loves you more than anything else. There's nothing you can do to separate that. We see in this passage that as he seeks to show God's great love for us, he begins, first of all, with the great foundation of God's love. I will see the great foundation of it all. Then he will begin to probe and question that foundation to show what that really means, what that great foundation really means. And all of this leads him to confess the great never-changing love of God in Christ. So let's look first at the, first at the great foundation which he lays. And he does it right there in verses 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And here in these first two verses, Paul is giving the grounds for everything else that will follow. We can say that this, these two verses are his primary thesis, right? And everything else is merely supporting evidence, right? It's examining this thesis from every possible angle. And we see two arguments being made here, right? First, 
we see that, Saul, that Paul, excuse me, Paul sums up the entire gospel into two words, into three words. God for us. Paul sums up the gospel with three simple words. God for us. And if that is true, then who can be against you? If the sovereign Lord of the universe has deemed to put his name on your forehead, if he has covenanted himself right, with a, a grip far stronger than any grip that we could have, then who could possibly stand against you? We almost see Paul having in mind Psalm 118.6 where he says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, if we confess that God is for us, then who really, if we believe all three of those words, if we believe truly what God, who God is, if we know what for is, and if we truly believe it's for us, then who could possibly stand against us? But there's a second side to that argument. What does it mean that God is for you? It's very simple. It means that he gave his only son for you. It means he gave his only son for you. As Charles Hodge again says, the exhibition, the showing of divine love, which surpasses and secures all other gifts, is the gift of his own son. Do you want Christian unshakable proof that God loves you? Do you want to be as sure as sugar that God loves you? Here's your first step. Look at Jesus. Because he's given them for you. He's given them for you. And what else could he possibly withhold from you? But notice what Paul is saying when he says God's own son. Right? For a son to be God's own, it had to be nothing less than God himself. Right? This is not a man who was just so good that he was called a son of God and happened to represent us. Right? This wasn't an angel that he sent to save us. This was God himself. This was God the Father giving up God the Son for you giving up his only son, the one who was life itself, tasted death for you. The one who called the world into being and holds all worlds together was hung on a cross like a mere criminal for you. And if God has done that, what won't he do? What won't he do for you? The great Scottish theologian John Murray put it this way, that the greatest gift of the Father, the most precious donation given to us, is not things. It was not calling. It was not justification. It was not even glorification. But the unspeakable and incomparable gift is the giving up of his own son. So great is that gift. So marvelous are its implications. So far-reaching its consequences that all graces of lesser proportion are certain of free bestowment. So great is the gift of God's Son that everything else you could possibly imagine comes with that gift. It all comes wrapped up in Jesus. There's nothing else you need than Jesus. 
And this one truth, God for us in Christ, is the, is the ground for all other claims the Christian might have. God for us means we have everything. But now Paul wants to unpack that. He wants to be crystal clear on what God for us means and how it is the bedrock foundation of our Christian life. And we see in the next uh, three verses that a whole series of possible rebuttals are brought forth. Right? He brings up a whole sort of rhetorical questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Right? You can almost hear the, 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 the reader of this letter thinking, yeah, that's great that God is for us. But what does that mean for me? Right? How is that good news for me? Because when I, when I read the Old Testament, God sending someone doesn't always mean good things. Right? It means judgment. It means death. What about all the things that I've done? Right, we saw this all the way back in chapter 2 where Paul showed that every man's conscience weighs on him. Every man knows that he has broken the law of God. And it's all well and good that God sent his son, but how does that solve my sin problem? How does that solve the, the list of things which only grows and grows and grows with each passing day? And you can almost hear Paul say, well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. And it's because God is for you that God sent Jesus that you can be called righteous. What we have here in these two verses, 33 and 34, is a sort of courtroom language, right? We can imagine us sitting on the dock before, the, the, before God, the judge of the world, and people trying to hurl accusations at us. Christian's a liar. He's a drunk. On and on and on, the accusations come to us time and again, from within and from without. And yet Paul tells us that God is the one who justifies. God is the one who has declared you just. I didn't follow up on the second question, who is to condemn? He will never condemn you. If God has cleared you, who can level a guilty verdict towards you? And here we get into the inner psyche of each Christian, right? Being declared a son of God and yet knowing, on the other hand, how much sin we still have within us. All the sin that still courses through our veins, day in and day out. Right? All those thoughts that run through your head. All those habits which still seem so attractive, 10, 20, 30 years removed. For being honest, sin still lurks deep within who we are. And that's a problem. What do we do about that? And it can make you wonder, am I really loved? Do all these things that I've done, that I continue to do, make me unloved by God? And Paul gives an unflinching yes. You are loved by God. Because here it is, Christ is dead for you. 
There is no charge that will stick to God's elect. And you can be sure that at the end of time, when we stand before that great judgment seat, God is not going to play a bait and switch. Right? He hasn't been bribed. He hasn't suddenly changed his standards on what gets an innocent verdict. But he will declare you as innocent. And you can be certain of that because Christ died for you. But there's more that Christ didn't just die for us, but he was raised for us. He was seated at the right hand of God, and even more, he is interceding for each of us right now at the, very, at the very right hand of God. And if we remember that union with Christ is at the center of Paul's theology, then not only are your sins forgiven, but you are given life. You are given a place in the throne room of God where Christ sits. And if that wasn't enough, Christ himself is interceding for you right now at this very moment. Right now, in the throne room of heaven, Christ is praying for you, Christian. For each of you. And here in this great intercession, we see Christ's great love for us. Right? He has saved you and is saving you even now by his intercession. His earthly mission, him coming to die for us, wasn't a chore. Right? It wasn't the, 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 his to-do list that he checked off. And then once he rose up, he ascended and went back to doing what he was doing. But he continues to intercede for you. God's love is shown for, to us not only in God giving himself to us in his own son, but also in the great work of redemption of his own son. And yet even with those things in place, right, God for us, God for us in Christ, and Christ's great redemption, Paul still isn't convinced that we have grasped the weight of what he's saying. He's still not sure that we're sure that God loves us. And so he brings in one final point to solidify our assurance. Again, Charles Hodge said that these next five verses are the last step in the climax of the apostles' argument, the very summit, the mount of confidence. And just like the other points, he asks a final rhetorical question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The presumed answer, obviously, is nothing. Right? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And yet there's a part of each of us that may think, well, maybe there's a catch. Right? My wife and I have started getting into Frasier, just a great show all around. Um, and if you've seen it, you know that you know, they're uh, pretentious, snobby, white-collar doctors. And Niles, the brother, has the wife Maris, who was born into great wealth, has never lifted a finger. And uh, in one episode, Niles is talking about how he's always wanted a dog, but Maris hates pets. And he says, here's why, because she doesn't trust things that love her unconditionally. And the same way we can, we, we, who are we to trust people that love us unconditionally, right? Anyone who seems to love us unconditionally is probably trying to get something out of us. Right? And is God really that unconditional? Can nothing really separate us? Because it often feels like when we have faith in Christ, that those who are his often get the shortest end of the stick. Right? Since Pentecost, right, Christians have been the persecuted, the misaligned. They face death. 
In fact, each of us, whether it's persecution or not, walk through various sorts of troubles. There's money troubles, there's marriage troubles, on and on and on, illness, sickness, death. It can seem like, does God really love me? Did he just get me on his team to get my money, get my time, and then kind of push me away when I'm no longer needed? But Paul wants to show you that even through that, Christ loves you. In fact, as we saw in Romans 8.28, that all of that is because Christ loves you. All those things, every moment of our day that we walk through, good or bad, is because Christ loves you. And Paul quotes, Paul looks to Psalm 44.22 to support for this. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's looking back to the Old Testament, right, to David, saying, see, God's people have for all time been persecuted. To be a child of God is to be hated by the world. And yet even through that, right, God has proved himself faithful to his people. God has proved his love to them time after time after time. Or even think of Hebrews 11, right, the great hall of faith, all the saints that have walked in glory and grandeur before us. And here's how that, that chapter ends. The author writes, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. God's people have always been hated by the world. And the misfortunes, the, the trials that we walk through are, is not proof that God doesn't love you. In fact, if it's anything, it's proof that God does love you. And he wants more than anything you to be fashioned like a diamond and you to emerge gloriously white, sparkling on the last day. But just in case you miss the presumed negative to Paul's question, he spells it out for us in big, broad letters. No, nothing you can do can separate you from the love of God. No one can separate you from the love of Christ. But we are, as he says, more than conquerors. Because God is for us, we will not only survive, but emerge victorious from all things. It's only when we look at the, the foot of the cross, right? Standing beneath the foot of the cross that we find ourselves to be conquerors. It's not our own can-do attitude. It's not keeping a, a positive outlook on the sunny side of life, but it's standing beneath the foot of the cross, which shows us to be conquerors. And this last section leads Paul to confess, confess what might be the most beautiful words he has ever penned. You want the final answer? You want the full sum of what Paul has been teaching us? Is that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not your sin, not your death, not any man or power in all creation. Paul wants you to hear, Paul wants to hear you say these three words. I am sure. I am sure 
that nothing can separate me from the love of God. See, he knew the complete joy and freedom of having that grounded into the deepest part of his heart and mind. No more sleepless nights wondering, does anybody really love me? No more plagued consciences, counting sins, thinking, man, I've really done it this time. No more looking out at your circumstances and fearing, God must really hate me after all. If you are in Christ, you can say with the utmost certainty, God loves me. It's more certain than the sun rising tomorrow. It's even more certain than your very next breath. But I want to be clear that this certainty is not for everyone. Paul is not saying, hey, everybody, look how great God loves you. It is only for those who are united to Christ. Look at how he says. He says, we'll be able to separate us from the love of God. Not stop. No period. But nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the love of God, as Charles Hodge said, the love of God, infinite and unchangeable as it is, is manifested to sinners only through Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus, you may be sitting here this morning having exhausted every option. You've done everything you can to, to find someone or something to love you. Maybe you even tried a dog and even the dog hated you. You've gone everywhere you could and yet you find that none of it satisfies. So let me ask you, do you want this kind of love? A love that'll never end? A love that promises to be with you whether you turn your back on him or not? Do you want that love? There's only one way to get it. And that's to look to Jesus. See him there on the tree and you'll find God for you. You'll find the love of a God who gave his only son for you. Or maybe you trust in Jesus here today and yet you're still thinking to yourself, I've never felt this kind of certainty. I've never been able to be sure of God's love for me at any point in my life. Well, your remedy is really quite similar. Look to Jesus. See him dead, but even more risen, ascended, and interceding for you. And no, it's not your love for him, but it's his love for you that is unbreakable. God for us means that he is always and forevermore our loving Savior and Redeemer. Nothing can take you out of the palm of his hand. Here's the good news and the bad news in that. You will find a love like that nowhere else. And when you come to taste that love for the very first time, when you see the great love with which God loves us, you'll realize that you never really knew love in your entire life. You'll realize all the things you thought you loved were merely a, a shadow, an arrow pointing to the one who truly loves you. See, it's not until we see Jesus Christ, God for us, that we come to know love as a familiar name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
your great love, your love which excels all other love. And we ask that you would send your spirit and convict us, assure us of your great love for us. Lord, is there anything else that we need other than that confidence that in Christ Jesus, God has loved us from the very beginning? We ask that our hearts would be transformed, grow our love for you, Father, more and more to be like that love which you have for us. I ask this in Christ's mighty and matchless name. Amen.